So today we're going to start a new series. Um, it's entitled "The Good News About Sin." The Good News About Sin. And I think in Scripture, um, sin is quite a complicated topic. And if you look through all the different verses or all the passages that talk about sin, um, there isn't a whole lot mentioned um, in each verse. And so you kind of have to compile all the different verses together to come up with something called the systematic theology of sin. And depending on which uh, denomination or which church you go to, different churches are going to have different approaches to this one word. Um, and so today I'm going to present a an Adventist view on original sin, if you will, and that that terminology or that might that word might ring a few um, bells as well. So a major portion of Scripture is devoted to this subject, and next to the word God, the word sin is probably the most closely packed word with meaning and complexity. But the question is, how do you actually define this word? Is sin an act, or does sin also refer to a state of being, who you are as a person? Is sin a corrupt nature, uh, or excuse me, is a corrupt nature in itself sinful or not? Uh, is man a sinner because he sins, or does he sin because he's a sinner? How about children? Are children born sinful, or are they born sinners? Do they become sinners only when they do wrong? The way a Christian answers these questions can determine how one interacts with the world. Um, the news is filled with Christians who have come up with answers for these complex questions. And, um, you know, as you flick through the different articles of people responding to this idea of sin or the sinfulness of humanity, you see little bits of this idea come out. And today I just want to say it's so important to look at the Bible as a whole, especially when we start calling something or someone sinful. So the Greek word for sin is hamartia, and this is where we get the word hamartiology, hamartiology, and this is kind of like a word that theologians use, and basically this is the study of sin throughout scripture. So the Bible describes sin as this mystery, and because it's mysterious in nature, when you read through the Bible and when you talk with different Christians and different uh, denominations, you see a very broad spectrum of opposing views when it comes to this topic. And so today, we're going to start this series entitled, The Good News About Sin, uh, and Sin According to Paul. And we're going to specifically focus on the writings of Paul. And so today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to present the problem of sin, and if you want to... Uh, come back next time, you'll hear about the solution for sin. So today we're going to talk about the problem. <clears throat> so Paul is a very prolific New Testament writer. And when you look at the word, or when you do a... I'm not used to having paper here. Excuse my uh, organization here. So when you look at the New Testament as a whole and you do a word study on the word hamartia, it comes up 175 times in the New Testament. The word most frequently appears in the writings of Paul, and in the book of Romans alone, the word comes up 45 times. And so scholars agree that the book of Romans is probably the most exhaustive uh, look into this word uh, hamartia or this word sin. Martin Hanna, an assistant professor of systematic theology, states that Paul's teaching on sin is understood in reference to three dimensions of sin. Three dimensions of sin, and here they are. 
involuntary corruption, voluntary carnality, and finally, legal condemnation. And depending on which theologian you look at or read through, you'll find different categorizations. But I found this one particularly useful and very easy to um, uh, find as you read through uh, the book of Romans. Sometimes theologians kind of say, oh, this is what it is. And as you read through the text, you're kind of like, yeah, I don't know. But I found Martin Hanna's explanation of the three dimensions of sin particularly helpful. So we're going to first talk about involuntary corruption. So Paul uses the word hamartia when he refers to sin as the bondage of corruption, Romans 8.21. And he goes on to say, even if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. So notice this challenge here. Paul is saying, you can be a Christian. You can be someone who loves Jesus and who is committed to Jesus, and yet your body can be dead in sin. So Paul uses the word sin to communicate a weakness or a flaw in humanity. So sin can be involuntary in that one believes they're doing the right thing, but really they're doing the wrong thing. Um, Another example would be uh, a sin of ignorance when you accidentally make a mistake, you didn't know you were making a mistake. And throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, it kind of highlights this involuntary nature of sin. So in Hebrews 9, 7, it says, But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. And so in the Old Testament, God provides this provision for uh, the sins of ignorance, if you will, or involuntary sin. And that's one aspect of it. There's another aspect of involuntary sin. This meaning of involuntary sin can involve missing the mark of a target that somebody aims at. And I don't know how many of you have tried archery before, where you are trying with all your might to get that arrow to go into the bullseye, and instead it kind of misses the target completely. So taken from Paul's own experience in Romans chapter 7, verses 19-20, this is what he says. And this is kind of like a bit of of a... um, a challenge to read through, but hopefully it's not a challenge to listen to, but bear with me as you go, as we go through this text. Paul writes, For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And so here Paul is kind of expressing this human challenge that there are things that we just we know it's the right thing we want to do it and instead it's kind of like oh it's so difficult Uh, i've been trying to go on this diet and exercise and my diet is basically just don't don't comfort eat at the end of the day that's my diet right and it's just kind of like oh i had a rough day and oh that bag of chips looks so good and i'm just gonna do it anyway right that's this is what paul is paul is um explaining And so he basically says something really interesting at the end. He says, look, it's not I who do it, but it is sin in me. And there's that aspect of involuntary sin that we're talking about. So in summary, in Romans chapter 5, Paul describes the state of uh, humanity and then introduces the origin of the sin problem. So notice what he says here in verse 8. He says, sinners are without strength, ungodly, not righteous, not good under wrath and our enemies of God. And in verse 12 of chapter 5, 
through one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Verse 19 goes on to, uh, Paul continues on by saying, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So Paul is highlighting something interesting. And if you read the Genesis account, we find that Adam's first sin was voluntary rather than involuntary. Adam's first sin was voluntary. And the Genesis account states that God looks at everything that he makes and he says, behold, it is very good. So when God creates Adam, he doesn't create Adam flawed. Very, very important. So when Adam makes that decision to disobey God, it changes himself. It also changes his progeny or his, uh, the, his descendants. And humanity is now stuck in a state of involuntary sin. There's a professor by the name of Gerhard uh, Fandel, and he wrote a development of Adventist theology on the origin of sin, or excuse me, on original sin. And he wrote this article for the Biblical Research Institute. If you're interested, it's a 22-page long document. If, um, if at the end of this sermon you're kind of like, yeah, I'd actually like to learn more, uh, flick me an email or a text message. I'm happy to send the document to you. Um, it's a very, very interesting read because it makes you think about aspects of sin that you normally wouldn't think about but are inherently a part of your thinking. So I continue on. So um, Dr. Fandel writes, Adam's legacy was not simply physical mortality. In other words, not only do we experience physical death as a result of the entrance of sin, but also spiritual depravity. So sin is a lack of conformity to the will of God, uh, either in act or condition. And so when we are born straight from the womb, we t our natural tendency is not to do the right thing, but to do the wrong thing. Our natural tendency is not to act selflessly, but to act selfishly. And I've got two boys, and they're still fairly pretty young. And I'll tell you, it is kind of like a miracle when they're like, that's okay, mommy and daddy. You rest a bit more. We'll play by ourselves rather than, I'm bored, I'm hungry, take care of me, right? And so there's this natural tendency that we have to focus towards ourselves. So as I mentioned before, the doctrine of original sin is nowhere developed in any systematic fashion in Scripture. Um, it's based on isolated scriptural texts scattered throughout the Bible, and theologians throughout history have pulled these texts together to establish some sort of a doctrine. So Paul is the only biblical writer who clearly connects the fall of man with our death and our sinful nature. And that's why Romans chapter 5 is such an important text in understanding what it means to, um, ha uh, what it means to be human and to be affected by sin. So I use the word depravity that we are, we have this condition of depravity. And this phrase, this phrase is used to describe the comprehensive effect of sin. So here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that humans are as bad as bad can be. Because I think naturally when you have secular people who hear about original sin, they're kind of like, there are lots of people who are not Christian who do good things. So how do you then explain that? And so when we talk about sinful nature, we're not saying that all of humanity is horrible. The word simply refers to the fact that humanity as a whole is born into a world where both physical death and a predisposition or a natural tendency to do wrong are a reality. 
So I want to share with you one other viewpoint, and that's um, the, uh, the Catholic Church's viewpoint. So notice how the Catholic Catechism addresses the idea of original sin. The Catechism asks the question, what is original sin? And it answers, original sin is that guilt and stain which we inherit from Adam, who was the origin and head of all mankind. So the Catechism kind of identifies two aspects of original sin. One is inherited guilt, and the other is inherited stain. So that's the terminology that they use. Now, inherited stain refers to our sinful passions. Uh, it refers to our tendencies and our uh, propensities to sin. But inherited guilt talks about some, it's referring to something different. It refers to the punishment of Adam being passed down from generation to generation. So the moment Adam makes a mistake, he is guilty. And the punishment for his mistake gets passed down. Now, the reason why I highlight the catechism's definition of original sin is because someone may be curious about how we as a church view infant mortality. And, I, you know, there, in our lifetime, we're going to face people who, who lose loved ones and especially um, infant ones. And it's a very uh, infant loved ones. And it's a very uh, unfortunate, uh, unfortunate circumstance. And I've been asked, what do you think about this topic? And... Um, Obviously, when you look at different, view, uh, different viewpoints, especially if you look at the catechism, it takes one stance. Um, I'm going to read the, Adventist, uh, the Seventh-day Adventist Encyclopedia's stance on this topic as well. So, Adventists generally deny that we inherit Adam's guilt. So, SDAs believe that man inherited a sinful nature with a propensity to sin, and their writings... Uh, either reject or fail to stress the idea that men inherit the guilt of Adam's transgression. In other words, someone has to make a conscious decision, I'm going to disobey the law of God or disobey the commandments of God. So until that happens, um, generally as a church, we just say, look, it's different. The guilt of Adam doesn't get passed down, even if the stain of Adam gets passed down. So this idea of sinful nature is pretty important because it highlights that we are in a state of involuntary sin, and it somewhat creates a definition and an understanding of our flaws. In the past, there have been popular ideas within Adventism that in summary state that sin is not basically what a person is, but the way a person chooses. And notice that slight differentiation. Sin is not something a person is, it's something someone chooses. So sin is concerned with our will rather than our nature. And what that means is, regardless of humanity's natural instinct to disobey, we can still do that which is right. In other words, you don't have an excuse for the decisions that you make. Because even though you have a fallen nature, you have the ability to choose right. And what this does is it adds a ton of pressure on everybody who doesn't make the right decisions. And back in the uh, 90s and even in the 2000s, this, this idea and this teaching was quite prevalent uh, throughout the church. I would disagree with the stance in that if you highlight humanity's predisposition to do wrong, it's very helpful in explaining the wrong that people do. It's also very helpful in understanding people as well. 
Brene Brown um, does an interview with Russell Brand, and you can find this interview on YouTube, and it's entitled, Are People Doing the Best They Can? Are People Doing the Best They Can? It's an eight-minute video, so if you have time, I highly recommend um, YouTubing Brene Brown, Russell Brand, Are People Doing the Best They Can? It's good content. I'm going to summarize this. Brene shares with Russell some research that she did on compassion. She was looking for people who lived out the operational definitions of compassion. And these are people who saw humanity in everyone. These are people who reach out with kindness and empathy and sense a oneness with those they are caring for. So if you want to learn about her findings, once again, you can go to the video. But what I want to highlight from the video is a conversation she has with her husband, where she tells Russell about this conversation she has with her husband. And so she goes to her husband and she asks him this question, hey honey, do you think people are doing the best that they can? And you know, he's a smart guy. He knows that there's, there's more beyond the question. And so rather than giving a quick yes or no, he, he, he pauses for a moment and he says, give me a moment to think about it. And he walks away. And she says, 15 minutes later, he comes back to her and he says, Okay, I don't know if people are doing the best that they can, but if I think they are, it sure makes me feel a lot better. There's this, uh, in this understanding of the sinful nature of humanity comes an understanding, a oneness, an ability to connect with the flaws of others because we too feel flaw. So part of sin is living in a state of involuntary corruption. I realize I never forwarded that, but there's that encyclopedia quote. Okay, so the next aspect of sin, or the second dimension of sin, is voluntary carnality. Voluntary carnality. So Paul uses this um, dimension of biblical meaning of, of hamartia or sin when he refers to those who are carnally minded, who live according to the sinful flesh. So in this dimension of the word's meaning, it involves voluntary uh, sin through intentionally aiming at the wrong target. So in Romans chapter 6, verse 16, oh dear, there we go. Romans chapter 6, verse 16, Paul writes, do you not know that in, uh, excuse me, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So Paul draws this connection between uh, voluntary and involuntary sin, and he uses the slavery metaphor. And what he's saying is that um, a consistent voluntary yielding to sin deepens our state of involuntary sin. And so we become slaves to that sin by habit, by addiction, etc., etc., so here's the third and final component or the third and final dimension of sin that Paul highlights, and that's legal condemnation. So uh, this aspect of hamartia um, that we're going to focus on today is when Paul describes God's legal judgment of condemnation to those who have missed the mark. So here are a couple verses. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, Paul writes, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Galatians 3.22, as Paul writes in his letter to the Galatians, Scripture has confined all under sin. I'm going to put a long list from Romans chapters 1 to 3 of the different 
um, sins that Paul highlights. And I'm not going to read through it, but I'm just going to invite you to scan through that um, huge section of text there. What I want to say is anyone who reads through the first three chapters of Romans, they're going to find at least some of their sins listed there. And we may regard some of these as small sins, but it's not but Paul's not trying to highlight big versus little or big versus small. See, Paul is trying to highlight being 99% good still means we are 100% in need of salvation. Being 99% good means that we are 100% in need of salvation. We are all inherently imperfect. And this is where this idea of legal condemnation is important, especially when we relate to others. And I've kind of uh, spent a little bit of time on that first aspect of hamartia. But because we are inherently imperfect, oftentimes we are tempted to say that someone is a sinner. So when you look at this list and you look at how the world lives, it's easy to point the finger and say, you, you got problems. But as you read through the list, you'll notice like there are three other fingers pointing straight back at you as you point at somebody else, right? And so... The idea is that as we read through this, we should personalize sin and recognize too, I too am legally under the status of sin and I am in need of salvation. There's something that Paul spends time doing in the book of Romans. He condemns people who condemn. He condemns people who condemn. I'm going to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 2. And Romans chapter 2 is kind of like, right at the end of a long list of uh, sins that are mentioned. Romans chapter 2. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. And Romans chapter 2, we're going to look at page 904. So Romans chapter 2. And starting from verse 1, here's what Paul writes. You may think that you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad when you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourselves. For you who judge others do these very same things. And so notice the act of condemning is being condemned. And if you keep going down to verse 4, Paul finishes that thought by saying, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? And if you look at a different translation, the translation will read, it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. And so the reason why Paul condemns condemning is because he's saying God is judge. And when we judge, we get in the way of his judgment, and we can condemn people who don't deserve it. And so Paul is saying, you have to leave the judgment, uh, you have to leave the condemning of people with God. So when we judge, we get in the way of God's judgment, but also we get in the way of God's grace. We get in the way of God's goodness. And so Paul is saying, listen, when you condemn, you are blocking people from understanding the goodness and the mercy of God. And it is the goodness and mercy of God that gives the strength for actual genuine change, repentance, and a turning from sin. So those are the three aspects of those are the three aspects of hamartia that Paul highlights. 
um, involuntary, uh, excuse me, involuntary sin, carnal, uh, um, <laughs> let me just go back to it because I'm going to fumble through it. Involuntary corruption, voluntary carnality, and legal condemnation are the three aspects of hamartia that Paul focuses on. I think understanding this multifaceted word is important because when we share the solution for sin and even when we uh, call out sin, it's so important that we do it correctly. And I'll just give one example in, in closing. When we misunderstand the complexity of the word harmatia, it can skew the way that we present the solution. So if you only present one aspect it skews the whole thing. So for example, let's say we are presenting the legal help that is provided, um, that, uh, the legal help that God provides. And the Christian solution for that legal help is Jesus dies for us. And by believing in that, we are then, we are given something called justification, right? It's by belief in Jesus' uh, sacrifice that we are then saved, right? So we don't have to do anything. There's no action. It's just a belief, God, you do love, you care, you forgive. But if we fixate on that one aspect and we ignore our inherent imperfection or we ignore the aspect of voluntary carnality, it gives Christianity, uh, people misunderstand Christianity. The late Christopher Hitchens would often say that salvation is immoral. Salvation is immoral. His idea was, the reason why forgiveness is immoral is because how can someone step in and take punishment from somebody else? If I murder somebody, how is it moral for someone else to step in and say, I'll go to prison for Roy? Because then it allows Roy to go scot-free and he can do more wrong. And so Christopher Hitchens is saying that the idea of salvation and forgiveness gives license for wrongdoing and it perpetuates wrongdoing. Now, the reason why he says this is because many times we communicate forgiveness or freedom, com, uh, freedom from condemnation by saying, it doesn't matter what you do. All that matters is what Jesus has done. <clears throat> so while it's true that all and any of our actions are forgivable, our actions still have consequences. So in that regard, what we do does matter. Right? Our actions can still hurt others. Our actions can change our character. Our actions serve as a witness to others of what it means to be Christian. And so Christopher Hitchens is not wrong by saying, hey, there's this immoral component about this idea of forgiveness. But when we understand the completeness of sin and the completeness of the solution, it changes how we act and it also changes how we present the solution. So next time for in part two, we'll focus on that solution and how God responds to the three um, dimensions of hamartia. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, as we consider the complexity of uh, the problem of sin, we come before you. We come before you and plead for that solution. That you are a God who considers uh, our state, our actions, um, and. Um, yeah, who we are, where we're, where we're at. And we just pray that you would uh, draw very near to us, that we might sense you in the midst of this struggle 
And may we find that peace, may we find victory, and may we find the ability to uplift humanity. Uh, We pray these things in your name. Amen.